Blog Talk Radio. and rollers thank you for tuning in to the next episode of she said she said this is blog talk radio's only program of rock and roll comparisons and contrasts given by the two birthday girls which very oddly um jude sutherland kessler and i just celebrated birthdays and we want to thank everybody for the for all the wishes there were so so many wishes thank you guys for that and also I want to give a special thanks to our Jeff Emmerich, our recording engineer, the fantastic Rand Kessler who provides all of our listening enjoyment for the shows. He does a fabulous job and anytime we tell him to do something, boom, he does it. He is a rock star. So thank you, guys. I am Lena Stagg, your culinary chef and the author of the Recipe Records cookbook series. Excuse me. A series of four rock and roll cookbooks that mix and blend rock history, facts, trivia, and photos with delicious and easy-to-prepare recipes that are themed for music music genres and bands and it's just fabulous to incorporate it into your kitchen hi guys i'm jude sutherland kessler you know me the author of the john lennon series as someone said to me at the chicago fest for beatles fans hey lennon chick that's me the lennon chick (laughs) the john lennon series is a nine volume we're up to volume four but someday if i make it we'll have nine volumes it's an expanded biography and it chronicles the life of john lennon and of course every move that the beatles ever made because they're all there together in a researched for over 33 years historical narrative format so today calling upon our perspective areas of expertise lane and i are going to compare and contrast the subject of Lena's most recent recipe records book, The Rolling Stones, with the subject of my books, of course, The Beatles. And this is our third time to debate the topic. In our first round, we compared the accomplishments of The Beatles and The Stones. And then if you get a chance to listen in archives, if you haven't already heard it live, in debate number two, we looked at their differing childhoods. And we talked about what the two bands' backgrounds either brought to the table or put in their way in terms of musical success. And today, we're going to continue our debate on the topic of who really was the greatest rock and roll band of all time. As always, I say it's those down and dirty dudes from London, the Rolling Stones. And in my new book, The Rolling Stones, Let's Spend the Night Together, I mean the bite together, I prove it. And, of course, 
in the immortal words of John, Paul, George, and Ringo, yeah, right, sure. <laughs> because we all know, don't we, Dara and Wayne, that the hottest, <laughs> hottest, greatest rock and roll band across the universe was and is the Beatles, whom, of course, you guys will learn much, much more about in my new book coming out in March, Should Have Known Better, Volume 4, and yes, the John Lennon series. And I have had the honor to have a sneak peek at Jude's upcoming book, and we could chat about that for the rest of the show. But we will keep on going. That's going to be put on the back burner for another episode. Without further ado, let's kick off this discussion with a song that truly demonstrates why the Stones wanted to become rockers. Here is a classic example of the raw, bluesy sound that the Stones loved and wanted to promote. It's one of the first songs that was written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and it was recorded in 1964. Here comes a little girl. I see you walking down the street. She's all by herself. I try not to. This heart of stone, oh no, no, this heart of stone, what's different about her? Oh, isn't that lovely? Well, you just heard a great example of what motivated Mick, Keith, Brian, Charlie, and Bill, rhythm and blues. The Rolling Stones primarily started their band because of their deep love of American blues music. And honestly, they didn't give a lot of thought to a future in music. They just wanted to get together and play the blues. They kind of had it in their bones, I guess. They were influenced by American blues artists such as Muddy Waters and Jimmy Reed. And these guys would spend hours listening to American records and teaching themselves how to mimic those sounds that they heard, those immortal sounds of the blues. This was similar to what the Beatles were doing up in Liverpool with rock and roll, Motown, and country and western songs. However, records were far easier for the Stones to obtain because London was a more advanced city in terms of merchandise. And to be honest, the Young Stones generally had more cash than the Beatles to make purchases. When the Stones first got together in July of 1962, they didn't really look at themselves as rock and rollers. They looked at themselves as rhythm and blue purists, specializing in covers of black American artists such as Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and Bo Bo Diddley, a genre of music that they even performed while sitting down, not careening all over the stage the way the Beatles were taught to do in Hamburg. An early description of the Stones was that they seemed accomplished and rather like art school guys, no posturing, almost like jazzers. And at first, 
the Stones only wanted to project and promote blues music. Selling themselves as sexy pop stars hadn't even crossed their minds. It was only later when they began playing their own original songs that they began to project sex appeal and a tough image that grew from raw rhythm and blues. And not only were the Rolling Stones not rock and rollers, but their fans were unique also. Um, A majority of the Rolling Stones audience consisted of bohemians and intellectuals, and many were men, which was a new twist in the world of popular music. You know, the, the Beatles were used to hordes of girls, and, you know, the Stones had their share of girls, but they had a more unique audience. In fact, Mick Jagger's been quoted as saying, R&B was a minority thing that had to be defended at all times. There was a kind of crusade mentality. And Keith Richards admitted that he wasn't really that interested in being a guitar player. It was just a means to an end to produce sound. And what Keith and Mick brought together was R&B, not the idea of becoming great performers with their names and lights. In Keith Richards' book, Life, which I highly recommend, Keith says, Mick and I had a totally identical taste in music. We never needed to question or explain. It was all unsaid. We'd hear something. We'd look at each other at once. Everything was to do with sound. We'd hear a record and go, that's wrong, that's faking, and that's real. I was looking for the core of it, the expression. So these guys were obviously in love with music. And I might say they were even more in love with music than they were with women. So it's my only personal opinion. But Mick Jagger was studying R&B, and he grew his performance in little bars, and he had a distinct vocal sound. And the more he learned and became confident, the more his performance on stage became very sexual. He was happy to go and stay low-key, to sit and sing and relax, and to go with the flow. But then those scousers from Liverpool hit, had a hit with Love Me Do. And then for Mick, it was Game On. And like Mick, Brian Jones was definitely motivated by the success of the Beatles. He and the rest of the Stones could not get over the fact that four boys from Liverpool could possibly have a hit song and could have written their own material. This was very shocking to them because they were quite snobbish from London. But before the Stones had hit it big... The Beatles had invited them to a show, and nobody knew who the Rolling Stones were. And after the show, Brian was helping move the band gear. And a young lady outside the venue stopped him and asked Brian for uh, his autograph. And she hadn't been inside, obviously, to know who the Beatles were. And Brian was immediately smitten 
That was what he called success, a barrage of young women waiting for the band. And after experiencing what the Beatles had, he wanted that for himself and his band as well. The rest of the band, Charlie and Bill, well, they were married and they didn't have much interest or intent in becoming rock stars. They were merely honing their musicianship and enjoying local attention. The bottom line is the Stones were all about keeping the roots of rhythm and blues relevant and introducing that genre to new fans. They they didn't think their band would survive past the 60s, but they were motivated by their desire to produce new material and share it with anyone, men or women, who wanted to listen. And the Stones have always been driven by their fans and their eclectic fan base and their nonchalant attitude toward fame, but their passionate attitude towards blues produced genuine, gutsy songs, much like this one. and rolling the beast of burden and i know you are you can't just sit there when that song's playing it's okay it's okay because i just told lena as we started the show i have become a fan there is no doubt that the stones were r&b purists and man they can sing a mean song but Back to our discussion of who was the greatest rock and roll band of all time and what motivated the Beatles to become the greatest rock and roll band of all time is something that comes from deep inside the heart. The story of what motivated each one of these boys, really, you can hear if you go back and listen to show number two. We talked about this when we discussed their childhoods. For each one of them, it was slightly different. For Paul, it was a chance to move upward socially. Um, He really wanted to be that person who went to the opera, who spoke French, who went to the theater. That's what he wanted. For Ringo, it was the opportunity to escape a rather hand-to-mouth existence he had experienced coming from the dingle. And he really wanted the good health that went along with being financially stable because he'd been very, very sick as a child and spent most of his life in sanitariums or hospitals. For George, however, it was one thing. It was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to make money.
that's old Johnny Lennon singing about that money. <laughs> and John's really the one that we need to focus on today because the Beatles were John's band, dreamed up by his mother and by him, created by him, hand-selected by him, and completely guided by him until along about the days of Revolver. I was just doing some research last night on book four in the John Lennon series, and Bob Dylan said, I quickly learned that it was John's band, and he was the one I needed to deal with. That's 1964. So it's John's motivation that matters most up until about the days of Revolver. So let's focus a short time we've left together on John's need to form what was first the Quarrymen, which eventually morphed into the Beatles. Now, most of you know the story I'm going to tell if you are Beatles fans, but we never get tired of hearing it. It is that story that touches our hearts. When John was about four years old, his father, of course, was away serving in World War II, and his mother, Julia, fell in love with a handsome waiter who worked at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. His name was John Dykins. She wrote to Fred, whom she had married on a bet. It was just a whim, a lark, and she asked for a divorce. But Fred refused. He loved her, loved her, and he said, if you will just wait, after the war, we'll be happy together, I promise. Well, Julia Stanley Lennon was a headstrong, bohemian girl, and she moved in with John Dykins anyway. Now, remember, this is the 1940s, not 1967. And in this new relationship, little John, who was around four years old at this point, really felt like a fifth wheel. So more and more frequently, what the little boy did was he would find the bus with the green leather seats mm -hmm. because he knew that bus would take him to his Aunt Mimi and his Uncle George, or George as he called him. And John would slip away to spend the afternoon with them or sometimes the night. And the more he did this, the longer he stayed. He would sometimes stay a week or more. Well, when Fred Lennon came home from World War II, he found John living not with his mother, not with Julia, but with his aunt and uncle. So Fred thought it over, and he thought, look, he's got a father. He's got a mother. He should be living with either his father or his mother. So without asking permission, without telling anyone what he was doing, he took John away to Blackpool. He hid the little boy, and he worked very hard, working several jobs, making money, money that was going to take him and his son away to New Zealand where no one would ever find them and they'd be father and son together forever. But someone blabbed. I think it was his brother who had been babysitting for John some during the day. And the night before they were to set sail for New Zealand on this big ocean liner, Julia shows up. Well, the story that John, who was very present in the room, always told is that his mother and his dad put him in between them and made him choose which one he wanted to live with. Now, in the last few years, in his book, Tune In, Mark Lewison tells a slightly different story, a story that was conveyed to Mark by a friend of Fred Lennon's named Billy Hall, a man who was in the kitchen in another room. We don't really have time to go into that new theory. Definitely recommend that you buy <laughs> Tune In and read it. But I want to tell you that however the story played out, the outcome of the two stories is the same. John said that he chose his father, 
because he'd been having a great time with him for the last three weeks. But when he saw his mother walking away in tears, he ran after her screaming, Mommy, Mommy, don't go, which is this line that he uses years later. Mommy, don't go. Daddy, come home. And when he when he writes music years and years later, if that line never happened, then where did that come from? His mother scoops him up takes him back to Liverpool and deposits him that afternoon promptly at the home of her sister, Mary Elizabeth, or Mimi, where, according to a very complex family agreement, the boy was going to come to live for the rest of his childhood and his teen years. Can you imagine the shock for this little mm. kid? little boy is devastating. It's devastating. She's left him. She battled for him, and she's left him. Now, look, Mimi was a solid caregiver. She made John go to school. She walked him to and from school each day. She made him do homework. She made him go to Sunday school. But when he would walk home with her from school, he would ask her the same question every single day. Why are you here when I come home from school each day, Mimi? <laughs> Desperately hoping that one of those days she'll say, because I love you. But every day his aunt would respond, because it is my duty to do so. Only John's Uncle George showed him love. He read to the boy from the paper, the Echo at night. He took him to the, the movies of picture drones that Mimi forbid him to attend. He hid little candies called barley sweets under his pillow at night. And everyone else should have been there for that little boy, but they were not. And only Uncle George showed this little boy love. Well, John continues to grow up living in Mendips with his aunt and uncle, and he finds out, as of course he will, that his mother is living only about a mile away with John Dykins. Not only is she close by, but she has two little girls with John Dykins, Jackie and Julia. So smart as he is, it's not too hard to figure out that it's not children she doesn't want. She wants children. It's just him that she doesn't want. He doesn't know anything about this family agreement or the fact that his grandfather, Pop Stanley, was part of the reason that he had come to live with Mimi. He knows none of this. He just believes his mom doesn't want him. And the hurt as he sang himself to sleep at night must have been overwhelming. But he does have Uncle George, that is, until about age 14 and a half when something happened that brought Julia back into his life. They sent John away on holiday to Scotland for two weeks, and when he came home, he found out that his uncle had died and been buried. And that night, when mm. he laughed hysterically, unable to stop laughing, they were going to call the doctor because he couldn't stop. And he's, he's beside himself. Mm. He is his, in, in a breakdown. Julia reappears. She talks to him very calmly and tells him that she is coming back to him, not as a mother, but as a best friend, that she will be his new George. So Bohemian Julia does the best friend thing all right. She hangs out with him. She teaches him to play the banjo. She lets him listen to her rock and roll records. And she encourages him to skip school and hang out with her. And during those days together mm -hmm. as they eat tea cakes and drink soda, she tells him a secret that he has music in his bones that she is a banjo player and performs in the pubs all over Liverpool, and his dad had been a famous singer in World War II on those ships that took the soldiers to the war front, and making John believe that he is destined for greatness 
she encourages him to form a band. And over the next few years, she watches as he does that. First, a little fledgling band, and then the band, the quarryman, begins to morph from a fling to a very serious endeavor. John, despite the fact that he's extremely jealous, of a young guitarist named James Paul McCartney admits the kid to his band, even though the boy is talented and smart and a threat for leadership because he puts his band ahead of his own ego. And Julia loves the young lead guitarist that John admits, even though he's a child, only 14 years old, embarrassing to hang around with, but talented. Nonetheless, George Harrison comes in. Julia loved it when they all gathered in her bathroom at one Blomfield Road. Mm -hmm. They rehearsed their songs, and they asked her if she'd play along on drums, well, pot lids for drums anyway. She was Mm -hmm. part of the group. And for this time in John's life, he was happy. He had his mother's Mm -hmm. attention. He had her love. Um, She was impressed with him. She believed in him. She adored him. He even got to record his first record with the band. But the next day, July 18, 1958, Julia was hit by a drunk driver, knocked 40 feet in the air, and killed. And John had lost his mother a second time, but this time forever to death. So from that moment on, John had his motivation. He began to sing songs for the girl who had once left him behind in misery. The girl he thought he'd never see again, and the girl now that he never will see again. He began wailing for her at the microphones of the world, telling in every song almost the story of his pain, his abandonment, his loss, his anger, and his longing for her. So go back and listen to the words of help or I'm a loser, or nowhere man, or Julia, and you're going to hear John reaching out for Julia. In fact, listen to the words of this song. I got every reason on earth to be mad, because I just lost the only girl I had. If I could get my way, I'd get myself locked up today, but I can't. I got a drip on my jaw that's bigger than my feet. I can't talk to people that I meet. If I could see you now, I'd try to make you sad somehow, but I can't talk right instead. Don't wanna cry when the people laugh. Yep, John Lennon's band was the vehicle for achieving what Julia had told him he could achieve. He wanted to make her proud. He wanted to expiate his pain Mm. and sorrow. He had to make it big to prove to his aunt, who had never loved him enough, to himself that he was a good boy, and to his mother that he could fulfill her dreams. He wanted to prove he was smart, he was worthy, he could do it. So the Beatles were a lifeline to John. They were his way of saying to the world, hey, guys, I matter. I count. I'm not a throwaway. The Beatles were his reason to exist, his salvation, really. And that is why John was so determined to make sure that he would do whatever it took 
to succeed. If he had to wear a suit, he'd wear it. Bow from the waist, he'd do it. Have his hair cut neatly, speak politely to people who were rude to him, he'd do it. His goal was to reach the toppermost of the poppermost no matter what. And to that end, John and the Beatles, because they are going to follow him, would subject themselves to any humiliation if only Julia would notice and would see. Listen to this opening line from the song, Julia. Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, Julia 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 Ocean child Calls me So I sing the song of love Julia Well, I have to grab my tissue and um, get myself warmed up. I have chills, I have to tell you. Um, that was awesome, awesome, Jude. As you can see, <clears throat> although the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were great friends, their reasons to become rockers were 180 out. The Stones weren't grasping for success as a means of validation or a way out of a lifestyle that they wanted to leave behind. They only yearned to promote rhythm and blues music and to please their fans. Yeah, and for the Beatles, it was a desperate need to fill this core longing, especially for John. It was a do-or-die situation. John had to make his band bigger than Elvis to prove himself to his family and, and to everyone else that he was worthy of love. Now, next time, we'll look at the people who touched these two bands' lives and left their mark on the band's careers. We're going to talk about awesome Andrew Luke Oldman. And we're going to talk about Stu Sutcliffe, John's soulmate. And, of course, managers Brian Epstein and that rocker Alan Williams. Until then, check out our websites. You can get all the information there. Sign up for our newsletters. Jude and I both have newsletters. Jude's website is www.johnlennonseries.com, and you can find my books at www.lenastag.com. We are also on all the social media places. Just check us out. We would love that, and we will be back soon, right, Lena? That's right. We're going to be back in December, and we will have another episode of our Stones versus Beatles debate. We also have an upcoming series that is going to be super fabulous. It's hashtag eye candy, and we have some hotties lined up for this show. I cannot wait for uh, you guys to hear this. But until then, I wish you food for thought, food for the soul, Food for the love of rock and roll. Ta-ra and shine on. And here's a couple of honky-tonk girls. <laughs> 